Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles this morning. John chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first 29 verses. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jim Hayeswinkle began wrestling in high school when he was in the 11th grade in 1960 at Anoka High School. He reached the state finals as a junior and a senior, placing second to both years. From there, he attended St. Cloud University from 1962 to 1970, which included years of service in the U.S. Army. Jim became a two-time Northern Intercollegiate Conference champion and a four-time NAIA national champion while at St. Cloud State. At that time, Hayeswinkle was the third wrestler in the nation to win four college national titles and the first to do it with two different weight classes. Starting in 1966, Hayeswinkle made seven USA teams in a row, five world teams, and two Olympic teams. He wrestled in three different weight classes in international competition. It is believed that Hayeswinkle was the first wrestler from the U.S. to make a world or Olympic team in three different weight classes. 
He's been inducted into seven Hall of Fames, including the Minnesota State Wrestling Hall of Fame and the National Wrestling Hall of Fame honored him in 2005. In 1971, Jim became instructor and head wrestling coach at Pillsbury Baptist Bible College in Owatonna, Minnesota. And that is where he would eventually wrestle me. Yeah. <laughs> that went about as you were thinking it went. <laughs> He was a wrestling coach when I got to college, and when I went to college, I was married with my third kid on the way, and he found out I had wrestled in high school, and I was mediocre in high school, to be honest. And he approached me and said, yeah, you should wrestle. And I said, I've got a wife and three kids to take care of. Wrestling's not in the agenda. I have to, I have to work and go to school and, and that kind of thing. So my wrestling days are over. But one day... And I don't remember what got us there. One day he and I ended up at the wrestling mat, probably because I did have to take a couple PE classes from him. And so one day he and I ended up doing a little bit of wrestling. He would surprise me because he kept sticking out his arm. He'd stick his arm out kind of at me, but he wouldn't grab me. He'd just kind of stick his arm out. And what he'd do is when he'd stick his arm out, I would grab his arm. And so I'd have control of that arm, at least so I thought. But actually what he was doing is he'd let me grab his arm and then he'd use my grip on his arm to accomplish his purposes in my life, which weren't good. I found that in wrestling him, he was different than anybody else I ever wrestled in that he would give you something to where you thought, oh, this time I've got him. And about two seconds later, you're on your back. And it's like every time that he gave me something like that, he was, he was setting me up is what he was doing. Well, you know what? The reason I bring all that up is because I see a little bit of that in this situation here with Jesus. It looks like Jesus is kind of setting him up a little bit. When you think about it, this guy's been sitting by the pool of Bethesda and he's paralyzed and been there for a long time. He says he's been there 38 years. Obviously, that's tragic in his life and any day spent not like that would be a benefit, that's for sure. But you know what? It's a Sabbath day and Jesus comes there on the Sabbath day. Now, we've already talked about, like think about the woman at the well, right? Jesus needs to go through Samaria. Why? Because he's going to meet that woman at the well. When she's coming out for water, he's going to be there. And so I don't think that it's just by happenstance that he happens to go by this guy that's sitting there at the pool wanting to be healed. I think it's by a divine appointment. But what is involved in this appointment, in this decision for him to be there at that time? I mean, that guy's there pretty regularly, right? Pretty consistently. He could show up at any time and that guy's going to be there waiting for the water to be troubled. But Jesus comes at that time. It's the Sabbath. The guy doesn't appear to have anything life-threatening. He's not going to die today. He's going to be there tomorrow. But Jesus chooses the Sabbath day to come and to heal this man. Now, there's some things about the Sabbath day. He doesn't really actually violate the Sabbath day. What he violates is the rules that the religious leaders set up around the Sabbath day. But it seems like to me when I look at that, it looks like Jesus is almost kind of forcing a conversation. And I think he is. And I think for good reason. He's presenting himself, right? He is the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world. We've recognized that in the Gospel of John, all the miracles he calls signs. They're signs to point to who he is. They're, they're signs that are demonstration that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, God among us. I think what we're looking at when we see this passage is we're seeing a definite escalation. By healing that guy on the Sabbath, he's raising the bar here. He's raising the conversation a notch. Because he knows this is going to be the focus. They're going to have a problem with this. Even though they shouldn't have a problem with this. In other places and other times, he's going to tell them, look, if you've got a donkey that falls in the ditch on the Sabbath day, are you going to help it out of the ditch? At other times, he's going to tell them, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And he's even going to tell them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
And so even if it was seen as a violation of even an Old Testament passage, then he actually has the authority to change that. And that's, that's really the kind of the point that Jesus is pushing out. You know, Jesus, we see him in another incident where he brings healing to an individual on the Sabbath. And he, the religious leaders are there to watch it happen. And they're kind of trying to looking for something that they can get him in trouble with, that they can uh, kill him with. And before Jesus heals the man, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And everybody says, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or arise and take up your mat and go home? Now, obviously, the the answer to that question is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't prove me right or wrong. You have no way of proving that, no, they're not, or yes, they are. And so it's easy to say because it's not verifiable. But Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now I'm going to tell you, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now what's the difference? That one's verifiable. Either he gets up and carries his bed home, or he doesn't. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm proving to you who I am. And so Jesus at these times purposely did these things on the Sabbath. This wouldn't have had to be done on the Sabbath. He purposely is doing it on the Sabbath. Why? He's demonstrating who He is. He's, he's escalating the conversation. He's taking it to the next level. And you know what happens? They escalate too. <laughs> they take it to the next level also. Look in verse 16. There's two places where He uses this little phrase that says, and this is why. In verse 16 He says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But then Jesus makes a statement about the Father and His connection to Him. And it says, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And so now, they're really mad at Him. And so now it says in verse 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. And so John tracks this escalation. At first they're watching Him. The religious leaders are against Him. But that goes up a notch when Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath and breaks their rules. And so that's an affront to them. And so now they take it up a notch. Now they're heavily persecuting Him. They're trying to find a way to get rid of Him. And then what does Jesus do? He answers them. He says, well, this is because I'm the Son of God. My Father's working, so I'm working. He's the Father, I'm the Son. We often think of Father-Son relationships as structured authority level, which they do include that. The Jewish people, their first concept of father versus son was not necessarily the authority structure. It was actually the idea of sameness in nature. You have the same nature as your father does. Your father's a human being. You're a human being. And in the father-son relationship to the Jewish people, their primary thought was more, this is who uh, it takes, gets my inheritance. This is who will run the, the family when I'm gone. It's the unity between the father and son that is seen, not the distinction between the authority. And so when Jesus said, my father, they were like, he's making himself equal with God. And they're right. He was. And that's the whole point that he's going to continue to make among them. And so when you read through this account where he comes across this guy at the pool, what is the whole point of this meeting at the pool? The whole point of the meeting of this pool is actually who is Christ? Jesus is raising the conversation to the next level because it's, it's not just about whether or not he does something nice for somebody else. Of course he does that. This is far deeper than that. It's far more meaningful. Jesus is the very Son of God. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is God in the flesh. And that's what John is portraying to us. 
So as we look through this escalation, we see it's going to kind of do that through two different means. One is it's going to demonstrate Jesus' authority. As we look at his authority, it's going to point out that he has the authority of the Son of God. He basically shows that over three different areas. The first area that he shows his authority is, is the one that we're already talking about, which is the Sabbath. We see his authority over the Sabbath. Jesus comes in and he heals this guy on the Sabbath to demonstrate who he is. He's in charge. That's the very point that he's trying to make with them um, at this time. When they challenge him on the Sabbath, what does he go to? He goes right to who he is. He says, but Jesus answered in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And so now they get really upset about that, that he calls him father and he doesn't back off of it. He doesn't step back and say, boy, that really made him mad and go a different route. Actually, he goes deeper into that same relationship in verses 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And so Jesus just probes deeper into the unity and the intimacy of the relationship between Him and God. You know, the Jewish people, they would call Him all kinds of names. They would call Him an illegitimate child. They would call Him a Samaritan, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, which was anything but a term of endearment. They would call Him demon-possessed. And so they would refer to Jesus in these different ways. And Jesus told them, oh, you guys got it all wrong. You know who I am? I'm the beloved Son of God. The things that I do are what I see the Father doing. That's what I do. The things I say is what the Father tells me. I don't do anything that's outside of His control. He has authority over the Sabbath. These people, for years, the rabbis had added this little rule to the Sabbath and this little rule to the Sabbath. You know what? You've got to think you're pretty high up to go adding rules, don't you? Apparently they didn't have too many qualms about that because they added a lot of them. Jesus shows up and He's actually the guy with the position, with the authority to affect the rules. And that's the whole point that He's making to them right there is that He has authority over the Sabbath. But then He goes into two more areas and He kind of keeps hitting these in several of the verses and kind of goes back and forth from one to the other. And the other two areas are life and judgment. We see that He has authority over life. In verse 21 it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. In verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You know, when you stop and look at just the things that Jesus says about himself in this passage, they're astounding. Even if you just look at the things that Jesus says are true about him, it is a claim of being God. He tells them, You don't have eternal life except through me, you don't have a resurrection except through me. He's going to tell them, I'm the one, the Father has committed all judgment to me. I'm the one that judges you in your life, decides whether you end up in eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Who has that kind of authority but God alone? It's just like that other thing where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And they say, hey, you can't do that. Only God can do that. You're right. Only God can do that. Well, you know what? Only God can decide whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell. Only God can provide you with eternal life. These are all God things. And Jesus claims to be involved in doing all these God things. You know what in the Bible? The Bible claims that the angels are God's angels. It also claims that they're Jesus' angels. The Bible refers to us as the elect of God. It also refers to us as the elect of Christ. The Bible says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. It also says that the Holy Spirit quickened Jesus from the dead. And Jesus said that He Himself would raise Himself from the dead. They've got to all be God if that's the case. 
There are so many different things like that throughout Scripture that if you just look at those, the, 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 the New Testament is shouting the deity of Christ to us. It's just shouting to us that Jesus is God. Well, one of those areas is His provision of life. God provided life for the children of Israel in the wilderness by giving them manna. Jesus will end up saying very shortly here as we go through John that He is that true bread from heaven. He is that life in the wilderness. He is the bread of life. He's the water of life. He is the provider of life. Well, in verses 25 and 26 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Now, there's, there's twice here that it refers to this to an, to an hour. He says an hour is coming. He's going to say that again in verse 29. And he says, and it is here now and it is also here now. I believe in this part of the passage, the life that he's talking about is the life that we gain at salvation, that, that everlasting life. Right? It's the life that he just mentioned right before it when he said, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. This resurrection, and, and I'm not alone in this. In fact, I learned it. Most commentators and scholars say that this one is referring to the spiritual life of salvation. It's referring to the eternal life that we have in Christ the moment that we believe. And that's why it says there's an hour that's coming and it is here now that when what those who hear those who hear the voice of Christ the effectual calling of Christ into our hearts those who hear it gain eternal life what did Jesus say if you believe in me you have eternal life if you hear my voice if you hear this truth and you respond to it in faith you become alive from the dead Ephesians tells us we were all dead in our trespasses and sins but Christ makes us alive he made us alive in him That's what this resurrection here is talking about. It's not talking about our actual physical resurrection. I think it's using it as a symbol of the spiritual life that we gain at the moment of salvation. And that's why the hour is to come and it's also here. But then notice as we go a little bit farther, he's going to change the subject, though it's closely connected. In verses 28 and 29, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So now this one, notice he does not say this is an hour that's coming and is here. This time he says there's an hour that's coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And what is this hour that's coming? This one is actually talking about the physical resurrection of physical bodies from the dead. It's talking about when Christ returns and you have the resurrection of the dead. Now, It can be a little bit confusing because it talks about the hour when this happens. And what we know about uh, from the Bible and other passages in the Bible is that the the resurrection doesn't really happen all at once. It's actually spelled out as being in two phases or two different resurrections. And they're actually separated by about a thousand years. In fact, even the first resurrection, the first resurrection, there's different time periods where that one hits as well as we look through Scripture. Uh, The first resurrection that the Bible tells us about, and it says that there is this first resurrection, Corinthians tells us, and each part of it or each resurrection happens in its time. And then it says, first of all, is Christ. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, remember the Jewish feast of first fruits was that when you harvested your crops, you took the very first part of the harvest and you brought a handful of that to God. And you gave Him the first part of the harvest. You were saying, God... Thank you for this, and we know that a whole lot more is coming. 
It was a faith that they knew that all the rest of the field, God's blessing was coming to them. This was just the beginnings of more to come. It was the guarantee even of more to come. Now, when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, it's kind of interesting, but it says that many saints, several saints that were buried in Jerusalem and stuff, their bodies came out of the grave and they rose again from the dead as well. And one commentator that I read pointed out that said, you know what, they never, for the first fruits offering, they never brought one stalk of grain. They always brought a handful. And that's very fitting because Christ, as He rose again from the dead, it wasn't just Him, it was a handful of people that were resurrected from the dead. That was the very beginnings of the first resurrection. Well, Thessalonians tells us that when Christ comes back to gather His elect from the earth, that that um, the very first thing that will happen was the dead in Christ will rise first. And then when you get to the end of the tribulation time, because you have people in the tribulation time that are going to hold out and trust in Christ and they're going to die because of their faith in Christ, at the end of the tribulation time, you're going to have the rest of the first resurrection that's going to take place. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4-6 through says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. Why were they beheaded? Because the Antichrist was alive and active on the earth. And if you don't take his number, you're put to death. And it says, And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. A little bit later in verse 11 of Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw a great white throne. You see, now this is a thousand years later and you're going to see the rest of the dead come to life here. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then a little bit farther in about verse 8 of chapter 21, it talks a little bit more about the second death. And so you see that when you look at the doctrine of the resurrection, scripturally, the resurrection is divided into two points. There's a first resurrection and a second resurrection. There's a first death, your physical death, and there's a second death. The second death is in the fires of hell. And that's eternal. The first resurrection started with Christ as the first fruits and a handful of people that rose with Him that day. We'll see it when Christ returns. The dead in Christ will be raised first. And then those who are alive and remain will be caught up to be with Him. And then we see Revelation 20 at the end of the Great Tribulation where you're losing your head if you don't follow the beast and the Antichrist. Then those people that died during that time for that reason will also be resurrected so you'll have all believers of all times have experienced the resurrection. But the unbelieving dead are left in the grave and their spirits in Hades until the thousand years of Christ's reign on the earth are up. At that time, Christ says, uh, all the unbelieving dead will be taken and moved to the lake of fire, which is the second death. Blessed is the person that does not experience the second death. Why does he not experience the second death? Because he was part of the first resurrection. Now, but wait a minute. How come John says all the people 
are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and be raised, the good and the bad. Why does he say all that happens in an hour, in a certain hour? Well, you gotta, you got to look and say, well, how did John use the word hour? Predominantly, John used the word hour to talk about the sixth hour this happened or the tenth hour this happened. Predominantly, he uses the word hour to talk about a specific hour when something happened. We just saw it with the healing of the official son. Remember, he got home and he asked, well, and they told him your son lives. And he says, well, when did he get well? And they told him a specific hour. And he knew that was the hour that Christ told him he's going to be fine. But there are instances within the Gospel of John also where it's not talking about a specific hour. It's talking about a time, a time period. We found that also with the woman at the well. What did Jesus tell her? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. But that hour doesn't need to be... It's not restricted to an hour. It's it's ongoing. In fact, all the, the hour of judgment is not going to be just an hour. God's not going to judge all the people, the whole world, all past, present, and future in one hour. John chapter 16 and verse 2, he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. That's not just an hour that that's taking place. That's a, that's a whole time period. It's the whole last part of the tribulation that, that, that that's referring to. And then in chapter 16, verse 25, it says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. He says, look, there's a time coming... Again, it's not, a, it's not a specific hour. It might start with a specific hour, but it goes on. It's a much larger period of time. And that's the way it is with the resurrection. The resurrection started with Christ as the first fruits. We're waiting now for the time when Christ comes back and we're going to be that, that hour is going to hit. But that hour is just going to be the beginning or the, maybe the reinstatement of the resurrection. It's going to pick up with Christ and those other ones and it's going to be the resurrection of those who are dead in Christ and then, at the end of the tribulation, those dead are going to be resurrected too, and that's all encompassed in the first resurrection. And then, the second resurrection does not happen until the end. All that to prove one thing. Christ has authority over life. He's the one that speaks life. And people come to life. Also, judgment. John chapter 5, verse 22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Verse 27, And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. He tells him in verses 28-29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, Jesus points out over and over through this conversation that all, all judgment, He says, it's not even the Father, not even God Himself that's going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. I'm the one that's going to sit in judgment over you. Your eternity is hanging in My hands. It's in My decision. Like I said, if that's not God, then I don't know who is. So we see Jesus showing all, all these areas of authority. He has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over life. He has authority over judgment. And so He is very clearly God in the flesh. But then lastly, the last point that, he, that we see woven through this passage is a proper response to His deity. In other words, there's three times that He mentions a response that should be happening, that should take place because of the demonstration of His authority. In other words, if God's in the room, what do you do? You bow. 
You worship. You believe. Jesus is saying, look, the Son of God is standing right in front of you and all you can do is argue with Him. A man was lame for 38 years and you don't even care that he can walk. All you're doing is mad on what day that he got healed. Their perspective was way out of whack. What is this proper response that is demanded through this passage in three different places? Well, first of all, it's to marvel. Can you imagine what a guy's legs look like that haven't worked in 38 years? And all of a sudden, he's up and walking, carrying things. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Honor. Honor is a fitting response. In verse 23, it says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In fact, here's another astounding statement that he makes to him that makes no sense if he's not God. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then lastly, to believe. In John chapter 5 and verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The response that is demanded that we would marvel, that we would honor, that we would believe, shows that Christ is the Son of God. Shows that He's God in the flesh. It's very clear what He's claiming. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming God's His Father. He has authority over life. He has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over judgment. The only appropriate response is for you to marvel at Him, to honor Him, and to believe in Him. 